When I got to the office this morning, I found something very nice on my desk. And, and, and there's usually two things that make me smile as a surprise. One of them you should know, and it's what? Chocolate, of course. No, that's what's, that was not on my desk this time. It does make me smile when I see a bar of chocolate on my desk, you know. And, and when I saw a box of chocolate some weeks ago, I said, oh, my gosh, I got to <laughs> work that up. But uh, the next thing that makes me smile when I get to my desk is a book. Now, who would know? <laughs> a book makes a, a man smile. Well, I, I got the book um, that I was talking about, and, and it's um, The Cycle of Grace. The Cycle of Grace. Uh, we are going to do this class in October after the service, and I usually say that if you come to Sunday school at 9.30, and should I ever teach at that ungodly, I mean, at that ungodly, I mean, at 9.30, I was going to say at that ungodly hour, right? Yeah. Uh, then you basically are, are listening to the anointing of the coffee of my espresso morning. But if you come to the class after the service, maybe you'll get the anointing of the Spirit as I have just finished preaching and the adrenaline is... <laughs> But it's a, I haven't scoured it. I know how the book came about, and it's very exciting. Uh, the book came about with missionaries in India, and it, and it was the idea that all these missionaries were going in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, are going to India, are going to China, are going to other countries in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and they're ministering. But they found out that like eight months to nine months into the mission field, they were already burnt out. Then he went for the three-year and the five-year cycle of burning out, which is typical in some places, in some professions. Already in three months, I mean in nine months of ministry, they were really experiencing burning out. So they hired a psychiatrist, and that psychiatrist uh, went and did some research. But the psychiatrist was a believer, so he contacted a theologian, Emil Brunner. And Emil Brunner and the psychiatrist began to discuss the idea of how come it didn't happen to Jesus? How come Jesus never wore out? How come Jesus never lost it emotionally or temperamentally? How come he was always, to, at least from what we know in the writings, you know? <laughs> how come? And asking that question, they begin to, to see how Jesus was full of grace. And, and that's the rest of the story is in the book. And and we're going to study it for four Sundays. Uh, uh, one of the Sundays, we're going to do a double whammy. We're going to do a retreat. Because this is not only a Bible study, it is also a spiritual formation class in how to live and practice the discipline of grace. We hear about the discipline of prayer, right? But we, we, have we heard about the discipline of grace? And that's what we'll be doing in August. So I invite you to join me in this adventure um, in figuring out how to live in the discipline of grace. A wonderful idea. A great gift for the church. The scripture I have shared this morning earlier and now are both uh, one from Genesis, one from the book of Acts. And I have been doing that this month. This is the last message in this particular section of the community of the Spirit. Um, and, and we have been moving from Abraham, and suddenly today we had a, a, a reading on Jacob. And we moved historically in that jump, and obviously, you know, if you know something about the Old Testament, when God was referring to some of the prophecies, I am the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. 
And the idea here that I'm conveying is that this was a community of change. This Israeli-Hebraic community of, of, of herdsmen, uh, very primitive uh, nomads that were called the Israelites, uh, were now becoming a people. And, and the people were having a God. And this God was almost too involved in their lives for their taste, probably. Uh, and, and, and that was the difference. So, this was a community of constant change. Likewise, the disciples, when they met Jesus, one of them, several of them were, were what? Fishermen, right? Now, we think of fishermen, at least where I come from in Puerto Rico, in the islands, in the Caribbean, fishermen as being poor people. Uh, maybe today. But if you think about it, fishery was one of the main industries of the era. Okay, and we hear of one of them who was a fisherman. His name was what? Peter, and Peter had a house where? He had two homes, and one of them was in Caesarea. Caesarea was like um, Hilton Head Island. Uh huh. Was a resort place. So, he must have had a little money. Remember, he did not only have that boat, he had several boats. By the fact that he also had a wife and he had to maintain her, okay? So, <laughs> so there was a wife involved somewhere in there. But the disciples' lives, he who was a fisherman, he who was a, a tax collector's lives changed dramatically. Let's read and see what happens to this group of disciples as they are now becoming together more and more involved with the Holy Spirit, as they are becoming a community of the Spirit, as they are becoming a community of grace, as they are becoming a community of action, as they are becoming a community of change. Listen to the Word of the Lord. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. Now, He's speaking to the people because he had just performed the miracle of the lame person that we read last week. Last week, Peter and John were going to the temple, and they were confronted with this man who every day was taken to the gate of the temple called the beautiful to ask for alms and for money so that he could care for himself. So, Peter asked this man, he told this man, I have no silver or gold, but in what I have I offer you, and in the name of Jesus the Nazarene, get up and walk. Now, he didn't only say it, he gave his, this guy the hand up, and he pulled him up, and as Peter was pulling him up, Scripture says, his bones and muscles strengthened, and he was able to leap and jump, and everybody was praising God. Well, Peter and John were, spreading, was, were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests and the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. Interesting. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until the morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So, the number of men, listen to this, the number of men who now believe is about 5,000. We've heard that idea of the number of men being 5,000. You remember where? When Jesus is feeding the 5,000? It is literally 5,000 men. And our argument is, because they are counting only the men, 
there were women and children, so maybe it was more like 10, 15,000 people that Jesus literally fed. So here, if we have the same amount of 5,000 men who are now in the church, in the early church, we are basically talking now probably a population of about 15,000 new believers in the church. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders, teachers of religion law, met in Jerusalem. Anas, the high priest, was there, along with Cephas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name are you doing this? <laughs> I have to laugh because, I mean, were they jealous? Then Peter, listen to this, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, we are being questioned today because we've done a good deed to a crippled man. It's like Murphy's Law. You're going to get punished. <laughs> it's in the Bible. Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred in Scripture where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, the Word of the Lord. A community of the Spirit is a community where the Spirit of God dwells within not only individuals, but dwells and moves in the collective and in the community. Not only does the Spirit dwell within your heart and guides your life, inspires you, motivates you, and leads you to all truth, as Scripture Jesus said He was going to do, but He also brings us together, binds us together in community for a greater purpose. For there is only one body, one spirit, just as you have been called into one glorious hope for the future. And I want to say, I, I look at this verse in Ephesians 4.4, 4, for we have one body, we understand that, we have one spirit, we are understanding that, just as we have been called for, for one glorious future. Is this glorious future after we die only? I beg to differ from that. I beg that God has called us as one body. One with one spirit who equips us, who inspires us, who sends us, just as we have been called for one glorious future for this community where we have been called. You see, uh, in, in the community of the spirit, we discover that God dwells in the community of the spirit. We also discover that the community of the Spirit is a community of grace, a community where God's grace dwells in our hearts, where we accept each other just as Christ accepted each one of us, where we are sustained and we sustain each other as we are sustained by God's grace. And we discover the gracious gifts of significance because we're given a mission, we're given a title of ambassadors, of disciples of Jesus Christ to proclaim the light of the Master, the light of God to a darkened 
world a darkened community. And that gives us meaning as, as we acquire that meaning that we are equipped by God, that we are sent by God to make a difference in this community, then we become fruitful in our new nature. Notice our new nature. What's happening in American Christianity is that we become Christians, we begin to go to church, and then we settle. We think that coming to church is just the idea of checking out my Sunday duty, checking out my God. Click. Uh, how many of you work where you have to put a clock in? Does those things still exist? Yeah, yeah, okay. I remember that one. My goodness. I used to call ahead. Can you do this for me, please? I'll be there in two minutes. <laughs> No, yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we're trying to, to, to compete to be accepted in a society where God's already accepted us. But we have been called to make a difference, not just to come here as believers, sit, sing, practice our spiritual formation disciplines because that's what we do here in the hour. What kind of spiritual formation practices do we do here in the hour? Can you mention them? Conversation time. Prayer, what else? Huh? Praise, singing, worship, huh? that kind of worship, singing. What else? We have silence, eh, a little bit, but we try to like silence. We have readings. We have listening of the Scriptures. And now we're engaged in one of them, which is listening to the interpretation of the Scriptures. Okay? These are all spiritual disciplines. When we finish this one, we're going to do a confession where we kind of settle our hearts and we make a commitment to what we believe, or we try to understand deeper and deeper what we believe. So our Christian life is not about that only. Actually, the question was raised a week ago when, when Linwood and I, uh, uh, and I think Kathy Parson was there too, and Jennifer was there, what is the main thing of church? Is it worship? Is it worship only? It's not worship. Is the mission. God calls us not to gather, sing, feel good about ourselves, because that's what we do. We begin to feel good about ourselves. Is that what Christ has called us to do? In part, yeah, but not all of it is not about us and us feeling good about what we're doing. Many times, being an intentional community requires sacrifice, requires risks. And that was what we were discussing last week, how we were becoming a community of action, a community where action is, is, is what leading us, not action for action's sake, but action that is based in compassion, in God's grace, and God's love for this community, a community of compassionate, loving actions. Today, I want to speak briefly about a community of change. Oh, here we go again, change. And it's interestingly enough that today's, the majority of the, of the participants today are, look around, the remnant of the three congregations. There's some more. There's like five, for example, Pam is out, uh, uh, getting better. Uh, Pat is doing vacay, you know, stuff like that. So, so some of those are, part, but they're not here today. Look around. Oh, Alice, you came afterwards. You guys came afterwards. Who are you, strangers? Ed was hanging around, but he came and joined us afterwards. You guys came afterwards? You came way after. You're slumming it here. Lisa came recently. Bob's been here recently. But if you look around, it's mostly the remnant of the three congregations. Interesting that God made it work that way. I didn't want it to be that way. I wanted more people. So I get up in the morning and says, Lord, wake him up. <laughs> well, I fall asleep. <laughs> Again. But you see, it's fascinating. Why? Because believe it or not, we have become a community of change. 
today somebody sat at my desk and echoed words that I've been hearing for the last three or four weeks. Pastor, what's going on? There's something different happening. I wonder if we're becoming comfortable in whom we have become. I wonder. I wonder if we have become comfortable in where and what the Lord is leading us towards. It's not, I don't think God is pushing us in 20 different directions. I think God is calling us to do something significant in this community. And it has to do with alleviating. It has to do with, with preventing, alleviating and preventing poverty to a degree. That's part of it. We see a community of, of, of change is a community of innovation, a community of creativity, a community of best practices for life and relationships, a community that will embody the new reconciliation nature of the gospel. We're not here to continue what society is doing that's not good and healthy. Remember, whatsoever is good, positive, and healthy, that you shall do. That's what the commandment for my kids. And right now, in this hour, we're trying to do something here in this community that most churches rather not do. Actually, I know of three congregations in our county close to us. They decided in this last year to close their doors because they were not going to allow black people in their congregations. So close their doors, thank God. Because even though they're preaching Christ, that's not the best witness to the church and to the message of Jesus Christ. They did it. Some of us were uncomfortable when, when a Hispanic pastor came to be the pastor. My goodness sake. Some of us were so uncomfortable, they just left. Good. Somebody was telling me that sometimes if God's going to do something, God's got to weed out that which is not going to work with Him. Amen. It happens. They're okay. Some are with the Lord. A little jealous. <laughs> Some are in other congregations. But that's what happens. Change happens. And the Susan that I met when I came is not the Susan that I know today. I have evidence. I got pictures <laughs> of Susan very tight in a worship with her eyes like that. And then Susan kind of relaxed and, yeah, one day she's swaying. And who knew the next day she was clapping? Now, she's not becoming Puerto Rican in any way, shape, or form. That's not the idea. I don't think she'll cook that way either. <laughs> but what's happening is that we're beginning to feel comfortable in our new skin, in our new way of worship, in our new way of expressing love and glory to God. And that's a community of change. When, when, when I came on board, uh, there was a beautiful lady who really impressed me. And I take that story everywhere I go. Ruth Webb asked me, yeah, it's you, Ruth. When, when I was visiting the three congregations in those first three months that I didn't know where I was, what I was doing, and what, what I was supposed to do, yeah, I can confess that now. <laughs> Ruth asked me, Pastor, is the worship style from where you come from similar to ours? She asked me that question because she was really asking, how are you going to change worship? But I was coming 
I was coming from an AP, a executive presbyter situation, where I did not have one congregation. I was working with 32 congregations. So that's what my answer to her. About three months later, when I, became, when, I, when I became havoc, and I began to create havoc around here, and people began to like, what's he doing? And uh, people were calling the office, the main office, he sways, he claps, he dances. And the answer was, why is he the only one doing it? That's what came down from the office. I asked this beautiful lady, Ruth, how do you like our new worship style? She's a very honest person, and I appreciate that. And she said, I like it, but you know, those little three songs in the middle, I'm going to have to get used to that. <laughs> and I thought that was amazing. What a beautiful attitude. What a beautiful attitude. Something I guess I'm going to have to get used to that. But I have also evidence that she's gotten used to it because I even have a video where she is in one of these chairs downstairs last Lent where she is shaking the... She actually put the song in the, in, in the chair in front of her so that she could read along and she's shaking it along and she's going, oh, I got you on film. <laughs> I got all this evidence of how we have changed. In some occasions, we have also changed in the way when we finish a song. Have you noticed? When we finish a song, some of you say, yeah, amen, clap. Sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't, and that's okay. Because it's not a mandatory thing. It's how the Spirit is moving amongst us and within us on that particular moment. And worship leaders, Tiffany and I, sometimes we, we, like, we look at each other and we kind of talk to each other because, hey, something's happening. And, and if she sees me and uh, grabbing this thing back here, she sees me holding this and, and I go like this to her. She says, oh. I, and if she says me yes, then I go for it. But if she doesn't say yes, I don't go for it because I am checking the anointing. It's not for me alone that I'm sensing. Are you sensing it too? And she confirms it. Then we go. See? It's not a, a one thing. It's a community thing when the Spirit moves and moves us. But you see, this is during worship. How about our movement in our community outside? How about when we are going to go and be someone out there and make the difference out there? You see, changing is not only about doing something different. It's really something new. Something totally new. For we are a new creation in Christ. See, changing is not about holding on to the past. Though the past is nice. Why do we celebrate holidays? Because we're making memory of past. Whether it is a joyful moment like Christmas or whether it is a somber moment like Good Friday. But we celebrate, we commemorate. But we don't live in Christmas 24-7, 365. I would. But we don't do that. We move on. So we don't hold to the things of the past. We move on. This verse that, that uh, uh, I've put up there is talking about that we, but one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward. And listen to the word, I strained forward because the word is not I move just forward with pleasure and joy and, and easiness. No, it is difficult. It is painful to move in change. That's why a lot of people respond negatively to change because they don't want to go and pay the price. There is a TV show called Intervention and, and it's when, when somebody's really messing it up with drugs in their family, they have an intervention and loved ones come and speak to him or her and the idea is to transfer that person from their cycle of self-destruction 
to a rehab place in that same moment. Boy, do they say things they beep, 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 beep the whole show because they're not saying things that are intelligible or should be on TV. You see, but it is a change that is painful and it is difficult. We get addicted to the past. We get addicted to comfort. We get addicted to ways of life. That's why when sudden changes come about, we may, fra- we, we, we may lose it. When a hurricane, oh, not here, tornadoes is what we have here, you know, passes by, we may lose it or we may just see a chance to start it all over again. Golda lost her house in fire, and the next day I was, went to see her. You know, I think she was here, actually, because she had no place to be seen, but she was here. And, and her attitude impressed me. I have a chance to start all over again. Oh, goodness. Got rid of a whole bunch of junk. The one thing she missed were, was her books. Yeah, she's weird like me. And the recipes, but those, you know... <laughs> So change is true. In, it was true in the disciples' life, and I'll finish with this. Change was true in the disciples' life. From the moment they, they met Jesus, their life was never the same. Think about it. And then the Holy Spirit, Jesus dies. He goes up to heaven. They want to go back fishing or collecting taxes, and now the Holy Spirit comes. And now they're not fishing fish. They're fishing for human beings. Now they're getting in trouble. They're going to jail. Change is not easy. Change has a cost. Change has a price. A price. And it begins in our own lives. It begins by surrendering ourselves to the change that God wants in our lives. You see, God wants change. Instead, change offers growth. Change is continuous. Change is not a destination. Change is a process. There were three ladies when I came to this church. Judy Curley, June Molden, and Candice Brisbane. All three of them were amazing examples of faith in my life. Never forget those names in my life. Never will. They were examples of faith. And when they decided, their life was changing. Uh, uh, June Molden was, was half bionic. She had parts in her that were, didn't never belong to her. They were artificial. And she kept on. And her last writing was an amazing writing. I remember it. It said, final destination in view. When she had made the heartbreaking decision that broke James' heart and a lot of hearts to not take any more medication. That she was ready to go with the Lord. That's renewing of spirit. But that's at that level. How about now? When our hearts have been offered. When we are encountering no relationships. Do you want a relationship that's going to destroy your life or do you want a relationship that's going to build and contribute to renew your spirit, thoughts, and attitude? That's what God wants us, to be built in such a way that we are renewing ourselves. Not just changing a little bit here and there, but literally renewing ourselves. Change is not only a constant, change also requires a response. And this is where I finish, a response. When I came, I had to do changes here. I did not come, I was not hired by the what was called the Pastoral Nominating Committee, PNC, to figure out if we wanted changes. I was 50-plus already at my age, 57 now. In two weeks, I'll be what? 58. I'm getting old here in Georgia with all of you. That's great. Um, and, and I didn't know what I was doing. It was a big risk. I had other offers, and I didn't want to come to Georgia. You heard about that. I won't belabor that point. 
and I needed to take a risk. Two or three Sundays after we had started, <laughs> there were a few of the PNC, including Charlie and Pam, and I think Jennifer, they were standing back there, and they were standing back there like this. And I did my service. We did worship. And when I left, I asked one of them, why were you all like that for most of the services? Oh, I didn't realize we were like that. We just didn't believe what we'd just done. They were freaking out. And that made me feel real good. <laughs> A lot of confidence. They're freaking out, and I'm supposed to bend up. <clears throat> okay, we're going to do this in the name of the Lord. And listen, I remember freaking out every day because I didn't know what to do. You see, I came in from outside. I was parachuted in here. And Alice, I'm told that I'm supposed to, to make a multicultural church out of what? And then the group wanted to be split in two groups, a contemporary service and a, and a traditional service. What? Since I have old people here. If they start clapping, their capillaries will break. They're going to have to have, you know, hospitals. Awful stuff. I remember one day coming from Cartersville, praying, Lord, it's not my vision. You, you haven't, you know, you told them what to do. You're going to have to get that which you told them and put it in my heart because I have no idea. Oh, they had a beautiful brochure, multicolor, thousands of them that we never used. But as a platform to be launched, which was good. Change requires risk. At my age, to take this project was suicide. Could have been. Especially when then I found out that General Assembly is thinking that this project has a 95% of failure in the first 18 months. Oh, that would make me feel real good too. And then I found out that Presbytery, local Cherokee Presbytery, was voting yes, yes, yes to anything the vision team took up there because they knew this was not going to work out. But they didn't tell me that. So I came to where I did not want to come. And I'm doing what I love to do. Wrecking havoc. Pushing people off their comfort zone. Oh, yeah. In the name of the Lord. So we change and we change. So how do we respond? Some of you have seen this picture. Some of you have seen it in another context. By the way, that is a real bridge that exists. Today, the bridge exists. What do you think is the problem? I'll finish with that one. What do you think is the problem with that bridge? Was it built in the right place? Huh? How many of you think it was built in the right place? Let me see hands. It was built in the right place because you've seen the story. Okay. How many of you think it was not built in the right place? Okay. Well, the story is it was built in the right place. This is Honduras a river in Honduras, and what happened was in 1985, Hurricane Mitch came and destroyed the entire country to the point of rerouting rivers. Rerouting rivers. So the river at one time used to go under the bridge. The hurricane came, did not destroy the bridge, but changed the river. That's what happened to our three congregations when I came down. Think about it. 
you were in that bridge, but something had happened in our society that the water began to flow in a different direction. And, and Linwood, when, when, when we saw that picture some time ago, he said, I think we're on top of the bridge and we're moving that bridge to the water. I said, not only that, I was thinking about it, we're actually building a new bridge. If we think about it. Great metaphor huh? of where we were and where we're going. God is calling us to become a community of change, a community of graceful, compassionate love, a community of action, because we are what God has called us to be, a community of the Spirit. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for the way that you have carried us from where we were, where we were very comfortable. You made us very uncomfortable, and now we're kind of there. Okay. We thank you for the love that you have poured in our hearts. We thank you for the ways in which you have changed our hearts and our ways of thinking to include others in our midst, to include other music, to include other ways of worship. Why should we have one or the other when you have given us all? We thank you that you have called us to be this community of change in this area of town. But we ask you, O oh Lord, to bless us with more workers. For the fields are ready and hearts are waiting to receive the message that God is no longer angry with them, that God does not reject them because of what they did, what they do, or what they're thinking. That they don't have to perform and act before God to be accepted. But we also care for the ones that are here. And we thank you for that dimension of nurturing us also. We pray for, for Ken Wenzel, who, who is feeling better and recuperating at home. We pray for Peggy, who's also in rehab and getting better. We're praying for Donna Sims, whose leg is becoming healthier and strengthened. And we pray for her in special ways. We pray for others in our midst who are ailing, who are hurting. We pray for healthy relationships, not for controlling, abusive, oppressive relationships. We pray for freedom and health in our lives. We pray for your truth to reign in our hearts. We pray for the leaders of this community who will be meeting tomorrow to discuss future dreams and visions and wrestle how to implement them and make them real. We thank you, O oh God, for you, for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.